Hey, this is Barbara Corker, and you are now tuned in to Business Unusual. And everything you ever learned about business, throw it out the window. I'm going to tell you the real deal. Listen in. Today, I'm going to answer all your burning questions about work, life, starting a company, getting on track, and much, much more. Be sure to call in to the Business Unusual hotline with your question at 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. This episode is presented by my friends at Clavio. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O. So five years ago, Mark Cuban gets an email from two young guys saying, hey, you want to invest in my company? Here's what it's about. They were only looking for $25,000 and Mark didn't get it. Well, those two guys who sent that email I hear today is multimillionaires. We have Alex Lieberman and Austin Reef of the famous Morning Brew, and they've sold their business for a whopping $75 million. Mark missed it. Question is, why didn't they send it to me? Well, stay tuned right here because you're going to get a master class on how to start a business, how to use clickbait, what do you use in your subject line, how to get investors to believe in you when you have absolutely no track record, and how to work the wheel until you get what you want. Stay right here with me. These guys are walking, young, spunky geniuses, and they're going to tell you how they did it. Hey guys, so nice of you to be here with me today. Where are you? Where am I reaching you right now? Where are you? Austin, you want to go ahead? Yeah, I'm in Manhattan at my apartment. Thank God, you're doing all the work. And where are you, Alex? I am in the beautiful suburb of Springfield, New Jersey, in Nana and Poppy's place. Okay, and you're taking advantage of your grandparents? You're not uh, paying rent, you're using their stuff? Is that what, what I heard that, before? Yeah, I think you have uh, analyzed the situation perfectly right. That is exactly what's happening. Now, Nana oh, and Poppy are the best. Okay, they must love you to death. They and they do. loved you before you got rich, I bet. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they have some supported me since uh, I was born. So nothing about money has changed how they act with me. That's great. That's, uh, you'll, you'll find as you get more and more rich, I think you'll mistrust people's motives always on new friendships. For so sure. Everybody who's around you now becomes, I think, triply more valuable to you in your life. Somehow there's a innate trust that you won't reach again. Totally. I think that's a great point. Yeah. 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 Well, so let me ask you something. We'll start off with the story. I want you to tell me the story. So you sell a media company at a time when everybody's cutting back. Companies are folding. There's cutbacks. People are laying off. You haven't done any of that. You've had consistently high pro uh, uh, profits, of course. And then you bang right out of the gate, sell your business for $75 million. Tell us how you got there. Uh, yeah, I mean, so it's an interesting thing, right? Because you talk about how like media businesses are just getting crushed during this time. And in general, I would say people, at least from an acquisition perspective, don't have a ton of respect for media companies in the sense that like, we've seen more layoffs than acquisitions. We've seen more like, you know, companies getting uh, torn apart in the media about being a media company than actually being valued well. And I think it's so fascinating because we live in an age where building brand and building an audience is more important than ever. Just like think about what you've done in building your podcast and Shark Tank, how important and valuable that is for you as a human being. And so for us, it was just, you know, we've spent the last five years doing one thing extremely well, which was email newsletters. No one thought email newsletters were sexy when we were getting into it. Why not? I don't get it. Now that we see how sexy it is, why didn't anybody in that space get it? No be because all the talk was about doing video on Facebook and creating content on social. And that can be a part of how you create content. But the issue is, is when you're creating content on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, that's Twitter's audience. That's Instagram's audience. You don't own that relationship. And so email fundamentally is one of the best places to own an audience, just like a podcast is. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you something. It was shocking to me that, what, how long were you out of school? A year, year and a half? And I think one of you had just graduated. How the heck did you raise funding for that? I can't picture two young guys coming to my office telling, oh, the newsletter is the greatest when every, the whole world was saying opposite and actually fork over some cash to you. How did you get that done? What was the secret in that? Because you were against the grain. And why would they believe you? You had no credibility, no experience. What made them buy in? Yeah, I think it's a... It's a great question. So we were college students and, and we had this interesting growth hack where every Wednesday for the first maybe six or nine months of the newsletter, we would interview big business leaders. Uh, and we mostly leveraged our Michigan alumni network to find those people. Mm. And then when it, when it came time to raise money, we went to those people and asked them to either invest or uh, find someone else 
that they may know to invest. And it certainly wasn't easy. We probably had, I don't know, a hundred conversations and no one wrote a big check. I haven't wrote small checks. I think in the end, we had about 30 investors uh, invest on average $25,000. Uh, and so that's how we got it done. But it was it was hard work. And, and we convinced them that the value of the audience, the people we're writing for, the, the future uh, CEOs, future execs, that is a valuable audience to get in front of now. And we are getting in front of it early in their career before it becomes more and more difficult to reach them. And, and eventually we, we found, you know, 30, 33 people who were willing to take a bet on us. What, what I'll, what I'll, what I'll also say is that there's a reason we didn't go to like institutional investors. One reason was because I think we assumed just from hearing war stories, how just the business fundamentally changes when you raise institutional capital. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the other side of the coin was like, we didn't think we had enough credibility yet to actually raise money from institutional investors. That's why we kept it to family and friends. And to Austin's point, it was like, we proved that we built an audience. We said to these invest or these people that we interviewed, hey, you provided a launch pad for this business, come along for the ride. I think some of them, when they invested in us, were hoping for some sort of return. I think half of the people, honestly, were just like paying for nostalgia. When you're super successful in your career, you're in your 50s or 60s, and you're looking to relive the glory days of building a business, like you are paying for the experience. It's like going to an amusement park. I think for some of these people, they were paying for the experience of reliving a startup dream. Absolutely. And very well said. You know, I think if you had ever gone to institutional investors, that's called a cold lead. They don't have any vested interest in you. I think the idea that you had Michigan in common with them, uh, they had, it had to warm their heart, but you had already made them heroes. You know, for me, when people interview me about business, I feel like, wow, I must really know something. So you had already lifted them and flattered them and asked them to continue to go along with you and be part of the journey. I think that's very well put. But I bet you didn't really think of that going in. It was probably just tough. Like, how do we get some money out of this guy? Yeah, it was a grind. We spoke to a lot of people. I mean, we certainly did not have even close to a 100% success rate. It was a constant grind. Uh, just following up, nagging, bugging. I think some people, a few people may have just invested. So we stopped emailing and texting them because we were, we were quite persistent. I, w- I will say the best messages that we've gotten, not even after the deal, but just as Morning Brew grew, were the messages from our existing investors that said, damn, I wish I put in more. Or uh, even better, the people who said, I'm a schmuck, I should have put in money and I didn't. <laughs> I didn't believe in you guys. Like that is the best message that we can get. I and satisfaction when you heard from those guys who couldn't give you the money? I mean, I don't want to say that I I don't like seeing people fail, but it was the chip on our shoulder that I think every entrepreneur has. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story for a second, and he'll appreciate this. One of the first emails that I sent out when we were starting Morning Brew, we had uh, like 3,000 subscribers, was to this guy uh, named Mark, Mark Cuban. And it email emailed Mark I hope Cuban. He didn't pick it up. I hope he didn't pick it, it up. D- just wait. And so, first of all, did didn't have his contact information. So, like Austin and I, being just the scrappy people, somehow found his email. It was it, it, I don't. Even, it was one of his companies he started, and emailed him about this newsletter about Morning Brew, and he responded basically it with a short email just saying, uh, "This is interesting, but I just." don't get it. I don't, I don't get what differentiates you guys. There's so many email newsletters out there. And you know, it was a fair point. Like it was something that a lot of people were saying at the time, like, I just don't get it. There's so much business news it's out early there. In the game of, of raising the money. What did you say? Was this early in the game of raising? Yeah. Oh, th- this was before even raising. We're practicing on Mark Cuban. Great. It, idea. Yeah. It, aim high. It's uh, it's like what they say, you, you know, you shoot for the stars, you land on the moon. And so Basically, you know, Mark and I went back and forth. And I, even though he like rejected me, I didn't feel like I was rejected because he responded to me. And the fact that someone of his stature was responding, I respected the hell out of that. But it was fun over the years, continuing to stay in touch with Mark periodically. And kind of the culmination of all of this was, you know, you've been on Business Casual. He was on Business Casual as well. And I thanked him after Business Casual for coming on the show and for like staying in touch with us along the journey. And his email when he said like something along the lines of, I should have invested in you guys or this, I missed out on this one. Like that brought so much satisfaction, not because Mark Cuban failed, but like that was just one of many things that I think just pushed Austin and I to just make sure there was no option but to succeed. Like that was, that was always our default. There is zero option but to succeed. And it was always like, 
if we hit a challenge, it's not like, oh shit, we hit a challenge. It's okay, how do we get around it? How do we get around it? It was just that over and over for five years. Why wouldn't you take all those uh, people who regretted not investing, put them in frames on your wall and stare at them all the time? I would milk that like crazy. But if you, even if you don't want to do that, send me a copy of Mark's email. I would have so much fun with it. I could uh, put it in its nose all the time. I will, I will send it to you after this. Okay. Austin, you said a minute ago you bug people, and a lot of people just gave you money because you just kept after them. Uh, people tend to not know how to do that. What was your method there that you didn't totally turn people off, but you pursued them? It's a hard thing to do to walk that fine line. Yeah, I think we early on understood who was actually serious. I think there were some people who were definitely not interested. And so we- we, we know the difference between the two piles of people. What was that? Right away, who was serious, who wasn't? How do you Yeah, you can just tell, you know, if they're willing to take a call with you, if they're asking questions, if they come in prepared. And those are the people who every third day we would just follow up and stay and be persistent. So many times people reach out, you know, cold email me and they reach out like you never answered. I was like, yeah, you sent one email with, with three sentences. You know, you have to keep on following up. Hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's the update. And I think we showed progress over time. So we sent someone an email and we gave them information and they didn't respond or they responded, they didn't invest. And then a month later we'd say, Hey, in the last month, here's what we accomplished. And they say, oh, these two guys are serious. They're actually working hard and they're doing this, uh, you know, they're for real. And over time, as we showed progress, people got more comfortable with us. Yeah. And so you can't be persistent and not show and progress. To make sure I understand because I'm asked this question all the time. I've never been in the personal position of raising money. And uh, I would like to share that with people when they keep asking you. So the, the way you stayed in touch was updating them on your progress. Not like, what do you think? Have you thought about it? I think that people tend to take that kind of a tone in chasing an investor, which is never good. Yeah, when you're investing early on, you want to see a high velocity of performance. You want to see people moving quickly and actually accelerating in what they're doing. And so if you update, hey, in the last week, here are the seven things we did, that's much better than saying following up. You're actually showing that you're doing things. You're not just raising capital. You're running an actual business. I think the big thing also is it's like what happened with our advertising business, where in the early days of the brew, we had these tiny clients because they were the only ones that like didn't really care that Morning Brew wasn't a household name. They were just like willing to test on us. Yeah. And then once we got big advertisers like Discover Card or like Fidelity, it's like then not only is that ad deal worth a lot of money, but it's worth so much money in marketing because yeah. then you put it on every media kit, it adds legitimacy to the brand. And it was the same way with when we were raising money. We got our first check-in. That check was from someone who was big in the media industry. And so the fact that we could then leverage that on our emails and say, mm -hmm. hey, we got a six-figure check from this big media person. They know media really well and they decide to take a bet on two media founders. Now it's de-risk people where they're like, okay, maybe I don't have all the time to do diligence into this deal, but like that person did diligence. They know the industry better than me. Now I'm willing to take a little bit of a risk. Yeah, well, you had no shame marketing that, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. first, I mean, it was everywhere. Yeah, you didn't call and say, hey, I'm going to be using your name on a number of things. Do you mind? That was no. All right. And, and our view is it was, it was their prerogative also. Like we were trying to raise, you know, at the time, somewhere between 500 and $750,000. So it was like, our incentive and the investor's incentive to fill out that round. So in my mind, we were doing him a solid also. How long, just put in a frame for me, how long did it take you to raise the $750,000? I think that was the number, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was in about six months. Mm, not, yeah. not bad. My God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Well, Why don't you, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it's all good. I was going to say like, yeah. I, I think one thing to keep in mind also is it, it's, I think we had a relatively easy process. I put some, some of that credit to us for just like being good storytellers and salespeople. But what I'll also say is like, I think it's important to acknowledge that Austin and I come from privileged backgrounds. We come from a place where through the Michigan network, through our home network, we are connected through mm -hmm. one degree of separation or two degrees of separation to people ha who have money. And so I don't want to put all the credit on us. Like some of the credit is like our families being able to bring us up in places where there is a high density of people who have money to invest. Good for you, Alex. I have to tell you that exact philosophy is what most privileged children go out of their way to hide. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. I mean, you just think about all these people that invest in us. It's people who made a lot of money on their businesses who had the money to spend. 
And why did you call Austin? And Austin, what did you think when Alex first called you and pitched you the idea? You were just finishing college, I think, or just had graduated. He was yeah, so a few years ahead of you. What did you think? You think, man, this is the greatest thing or not? Well, so I was actually a subscriber to the newsletter and Alex sent an email to everyone saying, you know, I'm thinking about turning this from, you know, a, a, a small side project to a bigger side project. It wasn't ever, let's turn to a business day one. It evolved over time. And I thought it was interesting. I thought it was compelling. It was growing organically. And there was, it was very challenging for it to grow. There was actually no landing page to even sign up. You had to email Alex directly. You had to find out his email address and email him directly. And so that showed me, oh, there's something here. Sat down with Alex and we saw the, we had a similar vision for the future. Uh, that took us through the I'm end. I'm sorry to interrupt. You knew each other before through school or through family or you, you're just meeting each other for the first time? We, yeah, we just met for the first time. So we both went to Michigan. We didn't know each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was when we met. And then we decided the progress is there. Alex had spent, I think, about 14 or 15 months at Morgan Stanley. I just graduated. And we had a chat. And we said, we want to be entrepreneurs. We want to do something on our own. Let's, let's do it. Let's, let's, start, uh, let's start Morning Brew full-time. And then we went full-time right when I graduated. Alex went full-time a little bit before. And, and uh, one thing I'll always remember is... First of all, the decision to go full time was not an easy one. Like I think as I think back to how I tell the story, I make it sound very clean, but it was like eight months of me just like being incredibly stressed, basically yeah. complaining, complaining to my mom every day after work being like, what the hell am I doing with my life? So like it was not a clean thing. But what I do remember was when we actually made the decision, Austin was still a student in college. He had, he was a senior. He got an offer to work in investment banking. He was deciding whether he was going to actually do that or not. He flew to New York and we met at a bar right around union square on Irving place. I can't remember the name of the bar. It's like one of the oldest bars in New York city. And it was just buying it one day. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then we, we just over drinks decided, you know, kind of like F it, we're going to do this. We're really passionate about it. We're seeing traction and we want to control our own destiny. And it was in that bar that we decided to do it. Yeah. But Alex, you were giving up a lot more than Austin, not to offend you, Austin. I mean, you really had nothing to lose. Didn't work out. You go work for a bank, but Alex, you were use you were leaving a position that most guys really want to get. Yeah. Wrestled with it. What did your mother say? Did she think you were crazy leaving or did she think, no, you should be on your own? And are your parents entrepreneurs themselves? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, this could turn into like a 45 minute shtick for me. So I'm going to keep it to like four minutes. Basically, the, the long story short is my mom was definitely nervous. Uh, she was someone who grew up in financial services also. So like my dream growing up was to work in sales and trading. Like I had it written on my whiteboard growing up as a kid because my dad worked in trading. My mom worked in sales and trading. My grandpa worked in sales and trading. Like I came from a finance family. Yeah, exactly. Like my <laughs> growing up, it was like our thing was like talking about the Wall Street Journal at the dinner table. It was like no one else does that. And somehow I enjoyed it. Um, but my mom, did not like, did not feel good about it. She's like, what are you doing? Like you're getting paid well, you're working in a great company and you're leaving to do this newsletter thing. Mm -hmm. And, and I'll blame her for it. She, she supported me in the decision, but I would actually say my grandparents supported me way more, which was an interesting thing. But the long story short is look, like I was getting paid pretty well. I think my first job out of college at Morgan Stanley was like 75K, 80K. So like really good money. But at some point, I felt like I was diluting myself. I always say this, like, I don't believe I'm the smartest person in the room. I believe that what I do is I get into the room with people smarter than me so I can get smarter. And also, I just outwork people. Like, that was always, like, my MO in college was, like, I get good grades by just working my ass off harder than people. And I had this feeling of dilution where I was working on Morning Brew, I was working at Morgan Stanley, and I felt like I was doing, like, a B-minus job in both of them because I wasn't working really hard on just one. Yeah. And at some point I was just like, I, there's a fork in the road, I need to make this decision. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening was, it was the combination of thinking about what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst thing that can happen? Great place like, to go to make yeah, decision. And I, I think I was like, the worst thing that can happen is look, we go do Morning Brew full time, six months after it fails. Because statistically speaking, more startups fail than actually succeed. And I was like, if it does fail, then what? And I started going through all the options. I was like, maybe I can go back to Morgan Stanley if I haven't burned every bridge. And 
and, and and my boss will say it's like a good experience in him doing him doing something entrepreneurial. Then it was like, if that doesn't work, business school. If business school doesn't work, it's something else. And I got like five layers deep. And I was like, if none of those five options pan out, it's not a like morning brewer startup thing. It's like Alex not being a smart, well-connected human being thing. So it was the combination of looking at worst case scenario. And on the other side, you know, my my dad passed away when I was a junior in college. The long story short is after my dad passed away, it sounds cliche, but it just like changed my mindset where growing up, I was obsessed with money because I grew up in a Wall Street family. I said I was going to work in trading forever. But then my mindset shifted where it's like, I could just drop dead one day. I've seen it happen. And life is far too short. I need to really enjoy the shit I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why am I doing it? I'm sorry, You spend 50% of your waking hours from the ages of 20 to 70 mm-hmm. uh, working in a job. You better freaking enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So it's the combination of like change in perspective and worst case scenario that caused me to make the decision. Okay, I'm done talking. Okay, good. I want to say something. When I uh, stopped my job as a waitress and quit, when I asked the exact same question, I want to start this business. What if I fail? I had no doubts. I'll get another waitress job. It was easy. Yep, exactly. But Austin, what was what was Alex's in your mind? His attraction to you? Uh, what do you do? Like, why do you wind up being good partners? Do you have a different skill set? Did you recognize that right away? Did you, were you able to see the venture and see what was wrong with it and knew you could fix it? What was going on there? When he first approached you, how did you feel? Yeah. So I think early on, the reason why we worked well together was because everyone else was giving Alex praise and just saying, Hey, you know, here, your, your newsletter is amazing. And Alex would ask for feedback and everyone would respond. It's, it's great but that's not good feedback. You're not going to get better just by saying it's great. It's great. It's great. And I think I was one of, if not the only person who actually said, Hey, it's good, but here are four things that we can do tomorrow to make it better on Friday. How did you know what those four things were though? It wasn't like you were steeped in the business and knew anything about it. No, but I was a consumer of the product. So I don't, I think if you just look at it from a critical lens, it was pretty easy to say, Hey, that, that image looks ugly. That doesn't read well. Uh, let's add this section. So it was small things. And if you get one or 2% better every day or every week over the course of a month or year, you can get significantly better. Mm-hmm. And so I think initially I, I just stood out because I was the only person who actually gave critical feedback. Are you still that person in the partnership that you're always editing and saying, we could do this, we could do that. Or is Alex lead are you equally leading the business? How does that work? Yeah, I think we have very different brains. I think Alex is more of the creative, the the big thinker, and I'm more of the analytical day-to-day, uh, you know, get things accomplished from today till next week. And Alex is more the uh, the, the high-level thinker. Mm-hmm. And w- did you get your parents' support when you decided to go right into business after graduating, or did they think you should hold a responsible job for a while? Yeah, yeah, my, my parents were definitely uh, definitely not thrilled. Was that a good sign or a bad sign? <laughs> no, I, I think they were really excited that I worked really hard to get a job in investment banking and they knew it was a well-paying job. And they were like, what are you doing? You've worked for three and a half years to do this thing. And you're telling me all of a sudden you're not going to do it. And I think it was my sister. So she worked at Deloitte at the time. Mm-hmm. And so she'd been through one of those programs, right? Just like banking two-year program, Deloitte's a two-year program. Mm-hmm. And she was able to give me and my parents so much guidance into similar to Alex. You know what? He can always go work. He can always go back to the bank and go work at a bank and go work at another bank. And I think uh, she was really instrumental in, in helping me make the decision, but then also getting my parents on board with, this isn't crazy. This isn't going to change his life forever. If it works or, you know, if it doesn't work, the world's not coming to an end. What do you, each of you think uh, makes a good partnership? I think number one, transparency. I think the ability to have conversations, uh, I think that's first. I think the second is not having two of the same people. I think, you know, if it's like a tech business, it's obviously very easy to say, okay, you need one technical founder and one business or non-technical founder. But when it's not a a tech company, Mm -hmm. it's a little less black and white. Mm -hmm. But I do think our two styles, especially in the early days, helped. I don't think we realized at the time. I think looking back, you know, Alex is more empathetic. Alex is more of a people person, more of a culture person. I'm more analytical. And at the time, we didn't realize that. But looking back, that was so, so important for our success. And Alex, did you approach a lot of people or was it just Austin you knew was going to be the right guy and you went for him? Yeah. So 
I think what you have to remember here is like, even when I brought Austin on, it wasn't like a business yet. Like it was still just like this, like rinky dinky newsletter that was in a PDF that I was attaching to a new, like uh, an email every day. So I, I wasn't like calculated and like, oh, I have to think about this and my co-founder. I have these superpowers. I need this compliment. And it, was, it wasn't that. It was just like, I was attracted to Austin having a, a different brain and like pushing me to think harder. I think the thing that- But how did you know that before you got engaged in a conversation? It wasn't like you were buds before that. No, no, we weren't. I mean, we had one commonality, which was like we were in the same fraternity, but we didn't know each other through that fraternity. But it was the type of thing he responded to that email he was talking about being like, I have ideas for this, for your newsletter. Can we chat? And we met up over lunch in the business school at Michigan. And he just started walking me through these ideas. And like what he said before, it's like he was the first person to give me any feedback. And the fact that for the first time, I didn't have to force myself to think about how this product can get better, but I had actually someone pushing me to think about how it could get better. Like that, that was a great feeling. It had never happened before. And the interesting thing that we don't always talk about is we actually had four co-founders initially. It was, it was Austin and then two other people in the business school at Michigan. And I think in retrospect, it was the best thing that happened that it ended up being just Austin and I, because I think you hear this a lot, but every additional co-founder you add makes things infinitely more complex in terms of transparency and skill sets. But basically- What happened to those guys? What happened to those two guys? So so basically they, they started with us early on, right around the time that Austin started, and they just got- disinterested and it wasn't a good or bad thing but they just weren't as passionate about the product and it's one of those things when you start working on a startup and it takes you five years to hit any level of success but you don't know when that's going to happen so in the early days when we're going from like five thousand to six thousand subscribers if you're not super passionate about it you're gonna burn out and i think for them they just weren't nearly passionate enough about it and that's not a good or bad thing well, you certainly got the right partner. I'm sure there's no regrets there. Have you gotten letters from those two guys saying, I should have been passionate, I should have stayed with you? Well, can you buy me a beer? <laughs> One of them, yes, but, but again, they were they stayed on for such a short period of time. It's not like they stayed for two and a half, three years of the five-year journey. Yeah. It was like two and a half, three months. Okay. So, it so it was so short. It was a date, not a marriage. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, it was like it was like a first blind date. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't even dating. Let's take a short break to talk about a company I love. Now let's get back to the show. Come up with the name Morning Brew. Of course, you hear it now. It seems like the perfect name. But when was it a runner up of a bunch of names you put on a pad? Or did you know, I'll call it Morning Brew? How does that happen? Uh, It was the first thing you said. It was a long list. Basically, so the, the funny thing here is it was I was doing a brainstorm with one of my other friends from Michigan. Cause I was like, I want another creative person in the room. And the joke we have to this day is that we always said he's going to be the person that when we sell the business, he's going to say he had 1% of the company cause he came up with the name. He didn't do that. He's oh, a nice no. guy. But we always said that anyway, we were basically just like, okay, let's think about the modern business person. What does morning brew represent to that? Or what does this newsletter represent to that person? It is going to get them going in the morning. If traditional business news puts you to sleep, it's like, this is going to be the thing that gets the crust off your eyes, that gets you woken up. What, what also does that in business? And so we started writing down all these things like the commute, the brew, like caffeine, all these things. Mm-hmm. And we just combined two words on a pad that probably had a hundred different terms and mm-hmm. morning brew just stuck. And it wasn't like at the time we were just like, oh my God, this is like God's greatest gift to company naming. We were like, it's good enough. And sure. it was one of those things that people always say, it's like the, the name Apple, the name Tesla, the whatever, Ho- Home Depot. It's like, you don't think at the time, oh, this is going to be what makes the company. It's like the product and success makes the company. And then the name like drafts off the success of the product. Mm-hmm. When I first heard the name Apple, I remember the day I heard it, I thought to myself, what a stupid name. Yeah. Does that have to do with computers? Absolutely nothing. But boy, doesn't it sound cool now, you know? Same thing with Amazon. Like yes. Am- Amazon, well, Amazon, you could justify. They're gobbling everything up. The big guy in the space, when they're a bookstore, it didn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. They were yeah. just ahead of their time. Yeah. Barbara, I'm curious, I'm curious what you think about names. Like, what do you think about, obviously those are the big ones, but when you're working with a company early on, 
do you get caught? Because I, 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 there's two schools of thought. One, one school of thought says the name's super important and has to be great. And others say, who cares? If it's a great product, the name will, the name will not matter anyways. No, I think you, if you get big and successful, you can make any name have meaning and power. But that's not the idea of a name. The name is supposed to help you get big and successful. So I think the name is crucial. On so many of the businesses I buy on Shark Tank, I hate the name. But ask me what percentage of the entrepreneurs I can convince to change the name. I'd say one in five. Something about birthing a name is like having a child you name Joe. And then an investor says, I hate the name Joe. It should really be Sally. Try to convince an investor who thought of the name with him and his wife and his family members at the table and everything else that he ought to change the name. It's yeah. almost impossible. So I take a stab at it. Uh, I find a very easy way for entrepreneurs to name a business is to describe in, in a very short line what the business is about and run a contest, give a hundred bucks, or just simply ask for help, send it out to a million people or 500 or 5,000, whatever you have, and ask for names. I have named some of my businesses, renamed them very well by doing that for the entrepreneur and getting 600 names. I mean, you had another creative at, at your table, Alex, when you were naming your morning brew. And so you understood the importance of collaboration. Totally. I think in today's very networked society, you can get 500 creatives at your table throwing shit at, you know, and it's going to, something's going to strike you like pick that word, pick that word, which is what you did and put them together. And you got a great, it's a great name morning brew. I couldn't even imagine, uh, I couldn't even imagine how anybody could compete with that name if they wanted to compete in your space. Part of it is because it has power now, but even in the beginning, you're here once, bang, you get it, you don't forget it. I wanted to ask you about something that I think you do better than anyone in the media space by far, which is clickbait. Tell us how you do clickbait. How did you do it in the beginning? Well, first of all, I think everybody understands what clickbait is. Describe what it is, who did it first, yeah. what did you think the components were that made a great clickbait to drag the people in and then who does it now because i think that is frankly on an ongoing day-to-day -day basis more important than the name yeah so i i want to let austin take this what i will say is i think it's such a, a funny question not because it's not a good one but i think if you asked anyone in media about yeah. click us like being clickbaity they'd be like oh that's a really shitty thing like clickbait is like the trash, like the trash of media. But she I think- What's her bra? <laughs> yeah, so I think, but I think to, to your point, it's like clickbait is only bad if you have a headline that leaves you on a cliffhanger and then the content that you click into doesn't deliver. If the content delivers- You deliver every time. Yeah. So Austin, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think we focus on a few parts in particular. Number one, subject line. It's an email. And so for us, the subject line has to be, whether you want to call it clickbaity or attractive, whatever it is, because if you don't open the newsletter, nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. So that is really important. Well, stop there for a moment. How do you decide on that subject line? Yeah, so we've, we've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And actually another company called CB Insights did a really interesting analysis. Uh, but we found is generally the shorter, the better. Mm -hmm. And you want to give them just a taste of what's in the newsletter without giving them everything, right? And so, uh, one of you know, like like when we talk about Jeff Bezos leaving Amazon, the subject line is not going to be alert Jeff Bezos is leaving Amazon because you have everything you know. It was like by Jeff, and so it's kind of like, oh, are they talking about Jeff Bezos? Like, what Jeff is this? You know, you kind of like you get it, people intrigued. And our our managing editor, whose name's Neil, is incredible. And he's probably sent at this point a thousand emails. And when you collect data on a thousand emails over a period of time, you start to get a feel for this is going to work. Another really good one is like um, something around like using words like surprise or things like that. You're like, oh, that's intriguing. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And then I think we can carry that down to the full newsletter. The, the headlines are incredible. When you have a punny, uninteresting headline, if it piques your attention, it's probably going to pique other people's attention as well. Granted, but uh, help me, give me an example. For example, today, you had a certain story you want to run. You want to put a great clicky headline on it, drag people in. Uh, how do you, is it still your job or is it Neil's, Neil's position to do all that now? Oh, it's Neil's job. So Neil, Neil runs with the day-to-day the -day of the, the newsletter. He knows. Well, but when you guys are doing it yourself, what do you, like, what do you pull up from that story? It says, this is the headline. I know it. Let's do this. So, I mean, I'll just give you an example of like today's newsletter. The first story was pot is hot. 
And like, like, I mean, fabulous people, people don't see the image, but it's like the title is pot is hot. So that says something to you, right? Like there's so much pun there because obviously when you're smoking pot, it's quite literally hot, but like it says something about the industry also. And yeah. you're to look at like the, the design, the image that our design team created is like the most striking thing of literally like a bud of cannabis that's shooting up into the sky like a rocket. And it's like, you cannot look at that title pot is hot and see a rocket ship made out of cannabis and not want to read the story about it. Mm -hmm. So you're doing that every single day of the week for each of your stories. Does that take more of your time and thought as a collective group than actually writing the stories? What, what you want to really run with? That's definitely a question that's more for the editorial team than, than for me. But I would say that I think when they work, like sometimes inspiration just hits and immediately you're like, oh, perfect headline. Other times, that's why we have a great team and a bunch of people to all riff on ideas and brainstorm and, and work back and forth. I think another interesting thing is when we started Morning Brew, you know, we raised some capital, but it was very little. And we had to be very careful about where we spend our money. And so we had very little design work, if any. It was all off the internet. It was all basically taken from open source design. Now we have a full design team. And so now we have the ability to have a title plus an image. And these custom images plus titles, I think, start to tell a story mm -hmm. and explain and show the brand in a way that we couldn't have done before. And so I think the newsletter and all of the everything, the entire experience we provide readers has just increased dramatically since we've actually invested or had the ability to invest okay. in design work. To that point, I literally think there's a world in which we could, we're going to do this at some point when the world opens back up, which is like a museum of business, literally create a pop-up museum that images like canvases are on the walls with the designs we create. And then you know how art has like a little title next to it, who it's created by the dimensions. That is the headline of our story. And mm -hmm. then like, if you want to know more, maybe below will literally be the story you can read. And it's like by going through this museum of business, you can quite literally educate yourself on the most important shit happening in the world, but starting with like design and headline first. But yeah, I think to Austin's point, as we've gotten more resources, we find more dimensions to create just attraction to the story. The other thing that Austin didn't mention is it's also, there's a little bit of science to it. When we send out our newsletter in the morning, we test our subject lines. So we don't, what we do is we pick four subject lines and we send those subject lines at 5 a.m. in the morning to groups of like 20,000 people. And then by 6 a.m. after an hour, we see of those 20,000 person groups, which segment has the most opens. And, and, then we, idea. and then we take the winning subject line and we send that to the remaining, whatever it is, 2.6 million people. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you something about it that about reading your newsletter in the morning that has bugged the crap out of me. And I wonder if you can. Oh, great. Oh, no, 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 not so bad. But constantly soliciting me to bring in my friends, bring in my friends. A, I don't have that many friends. Every day, ask me to bring in my friends. I'm like, who do I have left? It makes me feel lonely. And it also gives me the sense that you're desperate to get people, desperate to get people. What's that about? And does it pay off? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. It's something we thought a lot about. So yes, it absolutely pays off, number one. And number two, I do think, and speaking with founders of other newsletter companies, I think it is something that younger people, uh, especially millennials, are more comfortable doing because they're in you know, Facebook groups or Slack groups. And so it's more native than to share with their friends. Yeah. So I think it, it is very much uh, a, a demographic thing. I think the the second. So basically, you're saying I'm too old to get it. I get it because I've been thinking for weeks. Should I invite my friend Edith in or not? Would she like it? Edith should absolutely read the brew. <laughs> okay, fine. What like, about? Oh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say is that you know people absolutely share it, but I think more than anything is it's 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 a sub brand of the newsletter we've built, and so when we talk to people, we hear people not just reference Morning Brew, but say things like, "Oh, use my referral code." So so I can get I can get morning brew stickers or get this or get that. So it gives people other mental notes of morning brew. So it's no longer just a newsletter, but there's more than just that. There is okay. There's the referral program. There is swag I can get. There's a Sunday edition, and so I think it adds layers of depth. Yes. Will it turn a few people it's off? A club. It's almost a club. You turn into a club. Exactly. It's like a yeah. I mean, I 
it's like more like a cult, you know, it's up to some respect. I want people to be fighting over who's going to get their referral code. And I've seen it happen where people talk and like, Oh, use my referral code. No, use mine. Like that type of affinity is what we want to build. That's, that's awesome. Uh, I think you have to, I think you have to tell her about the tat brew. The, the what? The tat brew. Oh, go ahead. Basically you talk about affinity. The referral program is like the spark to build affinity and loyalty. It's like when, it sounds crazy to you, but like when someone gets like their morning brew crew neck, which we call a brew neck or like stickers, like it's so prideful to them because like they are an ambassador of the brand. And for us, they're a salesperson of the brand. And yeah. like, you know, when you have built a, a successful brand and people actually giving a shit when someone gets a tattoo of your brand. And that's what people have started to do. There are literally people who have sent us tattoos of the morning brew logo and, okay. and, but, and by the way, that is like our best collateral for our media kit now because no one advertisers love seeing when you go to an advertiser and say, we have an audience that cares so much. They literally for the rest of their life are going to have our logo on their leg. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you uh, something I'm worried about. Maybe I shouldn't. Okay. I get that. I'm going to start signing up Edith. In fact, going on to the mailing list. I get it now. I was reading it wrong because I, I wasn't young enough to get it, but um I'm concerned about you guys fitting into a corporate structure. I know you sold your business. I think it was all cash or a payout. I wasn't sure I read both. Maybe you could clarify that for me. Did you walk away with total cash or is it a payout over time? And secondly, you're staying on with the parent company, which also has a parent company. So you're in a, a large business now versus your own little shop, right? I can't envision either of you after listening to you today with that energy level, et cetera, everything that you bring to the fore, how creative you are. I can't imagine you being happy. How are you going to actually work for the next guy, be an employee versus work for yourselves? Yeah, it is certainly something we spent a lot of time thinking about prior to doing the deal, obviously. For us, we got very, very comfortable with Insider, with Axel Springer. And so we really like the partner and we're only three months into this, but they have let us do our thing. We are very much our own entity within a, a larger uh, holding company. Now, of course, there are, there's more bureaucracy, uh, especially on the finance and accounting side mm -hmm. that has to be reported. That's, has but, not, that's not as damaging as having bureaucracy on the creative. Yeah. Exactly. And so that was the big thing. And we made sure that we were going to have creative freedom and flexibility. And so far, things are great. And so how do you even how do you even I've been in Henry's office, it's crowded with people buzzing all over. I can't even visualize you fitting your people within that, honestly. Uh, and how do you change that environment and not change your headset about your approach to your business? Yeah, so we are we have no intention of moving into the insider office or anything like that. We are totally staying separate, our own entity uh, within the the company. So yes, we I don't plan on sitting next to Henry every day. Okay. He's a great guy and all, no no nothing. But the fact of the matter is, you don't own yourself. I believe it makes an enormous difference. Do you think how how long did you sign up for? We're multi years. So we're we're in it for the long haul. Mm, you are. I'm sorry uh, to hear that. Uh, I was hoping you had a new idea and I could join you. If you one have day. a new idea, are you allowed to start it on the side? Alex, you, I'm sure you've had three ideas in the last week. Uh, I've, had, I've had four ideas about business unusual just in the 30 minutes we've been talking. Yeah, I mean, at some point, like, I think the good thing about having a partner that believes in us is, say there is something we want to start, whether it's within Morning Brew or not, I think the nice thing is, as we continue to perform as a business, it just quite literally, you have more leverage because you're doing the things you say you're going to do. And so I think a really cool thing, a benefit of a larger company, like a multi-billion dollar German media conglomerate, is they have the resource to potentially fund new stuff that you want to build within the company. So that's a positive. The, the one other thing I'll say, because you brought up Henry, is I think that was a big thing, like when we were making the decision, is like Henry Blodgett is like an entrepreneur at heart. Like he started building BI with like Silicon Alley in his apartment. I believe it started as a newsletter. It's like, it I'm sure he, he's thought to himself when he sold his company, all I want to do is continue building my thing and not have people mess with my shit. And, and so I think- Even that for Henry? I mean, he sold out five years ago to the parent German company, I think, right? Yeah. Has it proven free for him? Or does he seem more to you like a corporate guy? You know, I, I don't want to speak for Henry. I think he has plenty of flexibility and freedom. He's liking what he does. Uh, but yeah, I'm not, I don't want to speak for him. 
yeah, but, yeah. But, but all that to say that I think he respects that we want to be entrepreneurial and do our own thing because I think he wants that thing for himself. Yeah. But let's say, Alex, you think of a brand new idea that has nothing to do with what you're doing now. You go, I'm burning to do it. Do you have the freedom to start that on the side or must you bring it to Henry and the German company as part of the Ballywick? I got to look at my contract. Okay, look at it. <laughs> By the way, the, the clubhouse talk yesterday was good. I like that you guys have been doing that. Oh, you did it, in, uh, did it at night or in the daytime? We did too. I, l- I listened to one last night. Yeah, okay. But it's good. I'd be curious about what's your take. Obviously, it's a, a home run hit the clubhouse, but what's your take on it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's still early. Last I saw, they have 6 million users now. I think it's a great place to build a big audience because it's still pretty early on. So if you spend a good amount of time on it, you will build a large audience first, like er, well. You don't think that will last? I I don't know. I think it's too soon to tell, but I think it has really good traction and I'm getting value out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the the big concern is, which Austin brought up when we were talking about it, which is like, once you start using Clubhouse, how long does that last for? After your first week of using it, how many people are staying for week two, month two, et cetera? And so I think that's the big question is, will people stick around for a long period of time? Yeah. My big question is, how do you monetize the thing? I can't believe that you, there's no way of doing it. I've got to believe they're going to kick that in, yeah? Yeah. So their plan is to, to do things like tipping or paid rooms. So you could bring, bring your audience. People have to either pay 99 cents to join the room or to ask a question, they may have to pay you kind of like the Twitch model. I think it's a home run success. I think it's gonna be huge. Uh, I personally, like, I think it's a great place to build an audience because the Alex point, because it's so early. It's always great to be early in a platform, right? Mm-hmm. I just, and it's funny, I just saw Erica Nardini, the CEO of Barstool, she's doing something on there now. So everyone's trying to get on there. For me, it's just slow. It's a slow, audio is a slow medium. Mm-hmm. And like, I just don't- it's like, yeah, powers everybody to have their own radio station. Yeah. And for me, it's like, I know I should be on there more building an audience, but I just can't, I can't do it. Like it just, it just takes time. Like I just, I just can't stomach it. Like it just takes too much time for me. Yeah. When I was on last night, I swear to God for the last hour, I had pics in my eyes, holding them open. I so <laughs> much, my bed wasn't far. I so much wanted to go to bed. I'm like, how do these people do it? Don't they have a life? What I've seen though, is I've seen, um, exhaustion from some of the people you wouldn't think have exhaustion. For example, like some of these huge rappers, right? 21 Savage is in there. He used to have thousands and thousands of people. He's, I don't think the guy sleeps. I think he's in there 24 seven, Yeah. But, but now his room gets like 350, 450 people. Really? Which is weird because it's getting bigger. And so I think there's a cool factor of like, oh, I'm getting to talk or listen to 21 Savage live. But I think that goes away pretty quickly as like, yeah. as you start to see the numbers. So you can overuse it, you're thinking, right? Yeah, maybe it makes people almost too attainable, like too accessible, where it's like, oh, wait, if Barbara becomes my friend, she's no longer someone I want to buy her whatever or or follow her whatever, because like we're now colleagues almost. Yes, it it takes away exclusivity. Yes, it does. Wow, I'm never going on again. <laughs> what are you guys going to do with the money? I'm I now I'm just got a couple of curious personal questions. Are you going to go out and get a Lexus? Have you done already? Did you get yourself a beach house? Did you pick yourself a wife? Did you just definitely sign a prenuptial? <laughs> What's going on there? How's it changing your life? Austin, I think that was aimed at you. I guess oh, he's getting I married. That. Yeah, I guess he's getting married. <laughs> uh, I, not not currently getting married. No, but um I, I was going to make a, a Bitcoin joke, but you, but you made all the jokes. So no, I mean, honestly, not really much changed. Uh, still living in the same apartment. I'm actually moving, which is great. So moving to a new apartment, which is exciting, but uh, currently don't own a car, don't own a beach house. Wow. Uh, so I wish I had a more exciting answer for you. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't have too much, uh, too much exciting going on in my life during COVID. It's a, honestly, it's a good answer and that you went and bought real estate. I would think that would be a good thing to do with your money first off, you know? Well, I'm renting, so I didn't buy, but maybe. <laughs> no. uh, I, I, I was waiting for that. Um, and I uh, know about you, Alex, I'm going to start you off. Here. You moved into your grandparents' house. You're not even paying rent. Yeah. My goal is pay, pay less after this happens, not pay more. The, the okay. only, the only purchase I've made since the deal, which I was going to make anyway, was a dog. Like I've wanted a dog since I was born. So I got a puppy with my girlfriend, love the puppy. His name's Rambo stands for rambunctious. Ah. And, uh, that that's kind of it. Otherwise, like I know Austin does some of this, but just like some angel investing now, um, because there's nothing more enjoyable than supporting other founders and just 
again, we're both super curious people. So it allows us to just learn about new businesses. I'm sure it's a big part of why you like startup investing as well. So, so angel investing has been like the only other kind of outlet for me, which I've really enjoyed. How about your girlfriend? How long have you been living with her? Uh, we've been getting super personal. I love this. Um, so some nosy. So uh, we've been living together in my grandparents' place for three months. We've been dating for two years. And come May, we'll end up, you know, moving into a place in the city. Don't know if we're going to buy or rent a place. I don't, um, I haven't decided yet. I, I would say it seems like a pretty good time to buy given what's happened to real estate prices in the city. Um, but you honestly, I'll have to consult you when I decide whether to do it. But that, that's it. Yeah, we've been dating for two years. Yeah, Alex, when you, when you do buy, you better use Cork and real estate. Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah, you use whoever you want. There's great agents <laughs> in every company in the city. But um, let me just give you better advice and real estate advice. Make sure you sign a prenup if this gets serious. Okay, prenup. Even if you don't get married, you live a certain number of years, it gets dangerous, okay? Yeah. Nice. I feel, I feel like that's such a touchy, it's, I mean, I haven't gotten there yet, but I feel like it's such a touchy conversation. It's a terrible conversation, but the sooner you have it up front and get agreement on it, the easier it is. I know what I did when I sold my business. I had been married for like eight years, happily married. Um, I thought to myself, I don't need a prenup. The minute yeah. all that cash came in, I got a postnup. I'm like, what if this doesn't work out, you know? And so we yeah. still the post up and you know what it gave me peace of mind. It gave me peace of mind building the business from that point on. And, and was your was your was your partner not insulted by that sort of request? Well, you don't know Bill Higgins. Bill Higgins, he's like uh how would I describe Bill in that regard? You could kind of throw a bomb at him and he brush it off and not really take he's oblivious. I married an oblivious <laughs> guy that just like, no problem. It bounces, yeah, whatever you want. When I was scared to even approach it, like, I want to post up. We're happily married, but please, I want to nothing. Yeah, what do you want me to sign? Yeah. <laughs> gave away too much, honestly. I could have gotten away so much cheaper if I had known how easy it was gonna be. That is, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, guys, it's been great hanging out with you. I can't tell you uh, how joyful people must feel to see your success. I mean, it's like the great American rags to riches stories, even though you, I admire you even on that basis, you admitted you had a great advantage with the context in the world that you were given. Uh, but I'm going to tell you out of every 50 people who have that, rarely does someone take advantage of and make a world of their own. It's almost harder, I think, when you come from a, a family of privilege to make a world of your own. I mean, our, our, our parents just ra raised us the right way. Yeah, well, they raised you the right way, but you were programmed to be at an investment bank, both of you. And I think to go against that when you're an affluent child is more difficult than when you're a poor kid. Because what do you have to lose, you know? I lost right. my waitress job, easy choice. You had more to lose. You both, you had a future career in finance to lose. I'm not, I admire you for being uh, for sharing that with me. Honestly, I had never heard that before. And I hear this all this crap all the time, you know, no, but I, I, I am as happy you. as the next guy to see your tremendous success really. And so uh, but I am still worried about you working for that big company. I bet we've done that. We'll see. We will see. Okay. Yeah. So let's we'll update next year and we'll talk about it. Okay. We'll, good. We'll bring Henry on too. Okay. Great. Oh, I love that Henry. He's if I wanted to have a boss, I want a Henry as my boss. No doubt. Yeah. He's a great Absolutely. guy. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thanks a lot, Elsie. And that's all we have time for today. If you have a question, leave me a voicemail on the Business Unusual hotline, 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. You can also tweet it to me at Barbara Corcoran, and I may just answer it on a future episode. You've been listening to Business Unusual with me, Barbara Corcoran. Come back next week to hear more steps and missteps I took on the path to success. Search and follow Business Unusual on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.